Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Camille Weber. We're here with Travis Cook. Uh, owner and winemaker of Copper Belt Wines, and it is March. Oh, it's not March. April 20th. <laughs> it's April 20th, <laughs> 2016. So my first question for you, Travis, is why wine? Why wine? So I'm originally from Baker City, which is uh, on the edge of the Snake River uh, AVA on the Oregon side. And in the late 90s, um, a wine shop opened up in downtown Baker City called Bella. Uh, the uh, proprietor originally had a wine shop in the McMinnville area and she followed her husband over there um, for a contracting job as I understand it and started this wine shop and her and my parents became good friends and I spent a lot of time in her wine shop throughout the uh, junior high and high school years because I lived 20 miles out of town, that was the place to hang out after sporting events so my parents could come in and pick me up. So I, I got a chance to you know, walk through the shelves and look at wine bottles and more importantly hear her passion and her story uh, and hearing about you know, all of these wines from all over the world. Varietals I couldn't pronounce and producers I had no idea where they were. Uh, but I think it was that passion and that energy that at, at a young age as, as a, a young teenager I decided I want to I want to be those stories. I want to I want to do what those people are doing. So uh, when I graduated from high school, I went on to Oregon State University and studied viticulture and enology. I was a second graduate through the program because it wasn't really established. Uh, I graduated from uh, Oregon State in 2007 with my Bachelor of Science in Horticulture, with an option in viticulture and enology. And then from there, it was just about doing whatever I could to continue to live out that dream or that calling that I had felt. So it was, um, you know, finding jobs and connections. I spent a year working at a uh, small winery in Flomath, Oregon, Spindrift Wine Cellars, as their assistant cellar rat uh, and assistant vineyard manager. So uh, just continuing on in that, that path, I wanted to learn more so that I moved up to McMinnville where I was a vineyard manager for almost eight years for uh, various places. Um, in 2004, I planted my own vineyard back on the homestead as an experiment because in 2004, I had no idea how to grow grapes, really. The classes hadn't kicked in yet to uh, <laughs> tell me how to do that. But I was told by somebody somewhere that I could grow grapes wherever peaches were grown. In my grandfather's backyard um, was a small peach orchard and he had grown peaches for the last 50 years. So I'm like, let's give it a try. So we planted uh, Syrah, Merlot, Cabernet, and Cunois in the backyard. It was uh, 144 vines at the time, <laughs> and uh, they didn't die. So, <laughs> And those vines are still there today. Uh, the, the home vineyard since, just, uh, since planted more. But uh, I think it was just that kind of calling from from when I was a, a teenager hearing the passionate stories about wine that I wanted to follow it. Yeah. 
Well, you talked about OSU and your education there, but I didn't know that the program wasn't well established. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your experience at OSU and how that kind of helped you? Sure. So, uh, stepping back in time, my grandfather, um, when he graduated from high school in Baker, he went to Oregon State, uh, was there for one term, and then got drafted in the Korean War. And then my father attended Oregon State and graduated. Uh, so it was this kind of like, well, you're going to be a beaver too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wanted to be as objective as I could be with the school that I went to and try not to let family tell me where I was supposed to go and what I was supposed to do. So I was really focused more on the growing side and I knew to get a good basis of growing and understanding plant you know, physiology and morphology and all of that. Uh, horticulture was one of those areas that I should probably focus on and at the time Oregon State's horticulture program was was definitely up there. Uh, I had been told that it was one of the top ten in the U.S. at the time that I attended. So that was a big driving force for me to go to Oregon State. Um, as far as the, the wine studies program, the uh, when I first showed up my advisor told me that there wasn't really a viticulture or enology program per se, but that they were working on developing that curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I was like, fantastic. Um, whatever classes you think might be in that curriculum, just put me in them. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll sort out the difference when, when, uh, when I get towards graduation. I was on the five-year plan when I first showed up. <laughs> That's what I told her when I first stepped in the door. I was like, five-year plan to graduate. Perfect. <laughs> that changed later on, and I graduated in four years. But uh, I think it was about my junior year that they finally had hashed out all of the necessary curriculum. And most of the classes that I ended up taking fit well into that. Some of them were overlap, some of them weren't. Mm -hmm. But uh, I did learn that there was a lot of chemistry involved, and I'm not really a chemistry kind of person. Uh, so I was like six credits shy of my chemistry minor, and I'm like, I'm not going for it. <laughs> Get me out of the uh, the carbon rings and all that. So uh, it was it was fun because it felt like I was involved on the pioneering stages of something that that could be developed. Since then, the uh, Oregon Wine Institute has really grown, and and um, you know Chemeketa, you know, pairs up with Oregon State, and there's there's some really great. Uh, educational classes that that come from that whole conglomeration. So I think if I went back and did it, I'd probably get a a more immersed education within viticulture and enology within Oregon. But I, I felt that the uh, the classes that I took at the time were were adequate. And I've since gone back and taken some additional credits and stuff to kind of um, refresh my memory, so to speak. But. Um, yeah, it was it was really fun. Really good friend of mine and my college roommate. He was the first one through the program. He was a year older than I was, and then uh, there were two of us on the viticulture side that graduated um, with me. And then uh, most of my classmates within that program were actually focused on the winemaking side. There weren't a lot of people that wanted to go out and farm and work really hard. So that's probably why most of them were focused on the fermentation side over mm -hmm. the the growing side of the, the program. That's what I like about dual programs is you can't have one without the other. I think that's what's really neat about wine is if you can't grow, you know, fantastic grapes, mm -hmm. then you can't have fantastic wine. So that's part of the uh, pioneering way, I guess, Oregon. 
Um, <clears throat> well, in order to have good wine, you have to have good grapes. And right. that also means that you need, that choosing land to grow your grapes on is critical. So I wonder how you decided on Snake River and if the majority of your grapes come from there or do you kind of come back and forth to the Willamette Valley? So why Snake River AVA? Um, in the late 1800s, my great-great-grandparents came over on the covered wagons and uh, made it as far west as Elgin, which is this tiny little town near La Grande, Oregon. And then the, uh, the winter basically stopped them from coming any further. They decided Elgin wasn't the place for them, so they moved back towards Baker and homesteaded in a little farming community called Keating, which is where the vineyard and winery is today. So the location was established for me back in the 1800s. <laughs> uh, and so my family grew up in, and that's where I was raised, was on the family homestead. So it was, it was one of those kind of fortuitous things that I already had land available to me that I didn't have to pay for. Um, and as far as, you know, going ahead and planting and establishing, that was just, you know, well, I got a few dollars, I can at least throw a few vines in the ground and see what happens. <clears throat> as far as where I get most of my fruit for the winery right now, I would say that we're about 75% of our production is brought in from other growing regions. Mm -hmm. I bring in Pinot Noir and Pinot Blanc from the Willamette Valley, and I bring in <coughs> Syrah Merlot and a few other varietals from the Columbia Valley. Uh, the estate vineyard has Syrah Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Riesling predominantly. There's probably another dozen varieties that, you know, there's like two vines every, every row, uh, or every other uh, row. It's uh, kind of a conglomeration of my experimental block that I don't really look at too much <laughs> anymore. Um, we do have uh, two other vineyards that we're going to start sourcing from within the Snake River AVA. Uh, four years ago, my father and I started a vineyard management company over there in Baker County, and we planted, uh, let's see, there's 19 acres over there total of vines that we've planted for other people that um, we're responsible for farming and then that fruit will then be destined to go to Copper Belt. Um, we've planted Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot, uh, Rieslinger Verstraminer, Chardonnay, uh, Syrah Tempranillo. This spring we're going to plant uh, Sangiovese and Grenache. Wow. Um, both the Sangio and the Grenache are experimental. We'll, we'll do uh, 50 or 60 vines of each of those just to see how it goes. There's, there's really no other commercial vineyards in that area. Uh, there's a couple of small hobby type vineyards that are mostly backyard producers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe 10 or 15 vines uh, here and there. There was one uh, experimental vineyard planted in that area in 2006, so two years after I planted my first vines, and they planted I think 50 varieties in a period, in a, you know, in an area about the size of this library space, so a quarter of an acre and 50 varieties. Um, they didn't have the, the background in growing. I think they were, um, if, if I remember right, they lived on the East Coast most of the time and then they, they came over and tried to, to, tried to grow the grapes. 
so that didn't really take off. I think there's two varieties that are still alive in that vineyard, but otherwise not, it's not really producing anything. Uh, so those two vineyards that we planted, one's 10 acres and one's eight and a half right now, going to be uh, 10 and a half later this spring. Those are the two first commercial vineyards of any significant size on the Oregon side of the Snake River Aviate. Um, one's in the third and fourth leaf and the other one's going into the second leaf. So it's, that's really exciting yeah. uh, walking through the, uh, the vineyard now and seeing you know, two inch buds that are growing, you know, and seeing the, the, the Cab and the Merlot and the Chardonnay just like taking off. That's like, great, we're gonna have some actual Snake River AVA Oregon wine coming on the market soon. And that's, that's really exciting to be kind of that, that pioneering side. And it's a huge risk. I can't just go to the neighbor and ask him what he's doing. Because right. <laughs> I am the neighbor. Um, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, I uh, I've been really fortunate thus far to have good luck or at least got on my side as far as establishing that goes. But then uh, two, to have such a great um, wine growing region essentially next door that I can glean information from. And, mm -hmm. and you know, people like Dickie Rath are still, you know, walking around making, making wine so that I can, you know, ask him, hey, what did you guys do when you first started? You know, what, what were your challenges of, of that, that kind of brand new, uh, um, wine industry thing. So. Huh. Well, how do you decide what kind of varietals to plant? Because it seems like you have <laughs> quite a bit going there. Uh, most of what uh, I, d I try to decide to grow is a lot of just research um, on the individual varieties mm -hmm. and then trying to pair that up with what I know about the growing area so far. Uh, let's see, in 2008, I planted an acre of Zinfandel, and in 2010, I lost it all to a spring frost. And by lost it all, I mean it killed every last plant. Oh, um, no. So it was like, well, Zinfandel, probably not a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's definitely been trial and error. It, it hasn't right. been, you know, just, well, let's, let's put this varietal in and and see how it does. Uh, most of it is, you know, I'll, I'll ask about the variety. How does it, you know, I, we have a lot of information on how those varietals are grown where they're traditionally grown, like France or, you know, some other old world growing areas. But mm -hmm. as far as knowing how those varietals will grow in that particular area, I just try to ask my friends who have had experience growing them before. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a really good friend of mine that was the vineyard manager for Abacella for a number of years. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're well known for the, the Spanish varieties, especially Tempranillo. And uh, being able to, you know, pick his brain, he was actually the other one that graduated with me from Oregon State on the, the viticulture side. So picking his brain on what, what varieties did well, what clones did well, I mean, there's, you know, we all know there's numerous clones of Pinot Noir, but who knew there was, you know, numerous clones of Tempranillo out there <laughs> or anything else. So, um, again, just trial and error, doing as much research as he can and then just saying, well, yeah, I think it'll work and mm -hmm. just being willing to say this is farming and uh, if it doesn't work, then we'll just try something else. And if it does, then fantastic, hooray. <laughs> so. uh, well, earlier you talked about um, 
asking Dick Erath and your other friends in the wine industry for help with this kind of stuff. So who else have you had communications with or that you've learned from and you think you've been influenced by? So that kind of goes back to my days at Oregon State. Um, my extracurricular activities included being the student manager for their research vineyard. And I worked under this guy named Scott Robbins. And when he was at Oregon State uh, doing his master's studies, a good friend of his, um, uh, we all know him as Buddy Beck. He's uh, the owner for uh, Advanced Vineyard Systems in the McMinnville area. Um, he had a great tie into what was going on here in the wine industry. And Scott had a great tie to all the old timers uh, that were you know, coming in and uh, planting grapes and such. He had been making garage wine since the late 70s when all of these other guys you know, were, were first starting planting vines. So he had that connection, although he wasn't a commercial winemaker. He's, he's, that's what he liked to do. He you know, worked for Oregon State and was their uh, research farms manager. And then he made garage wine in his, his old wooden barn. So it was, it was getting to know those old guys and, and just like learning what drove them and who they knew that you know you start out with those connections so once i graduated i already knew the names of all of these people that you know had had uh, been here and started and i wanted to start out slow so i i got the uh, job uh, just out of corvallis i i'm not a huge proponent of going out there and making change although starting a new wine industry is a big change i guess uh, <laughs> So that's why I chose Philomath. My wife at the time, she was uh, getting her um, degree in veterinary medicine in Oregon State, so she had a couple years left to graduate. So it was close. Um, we rented a little duplex there in Philomath, and I started learning more about making wine uh, with Matt Compton from Spindrift, and then just trying to, you know, if anybody would come over to the winery, I would, you know, try to be there and like, who, who, who's that, you know, and, mm -hmm. and what are they? What are they doing? And, and uh, so his facility was big enough that he allowed other custom crush clients to come in. And uh, so that was always fun to see how other winemakers um, would do stuff. So it was, it was always one of those things where, OK, I know who that person is now. And this is the kind of wine they're making. Well, where did they learn? You know, Where do they get the grapes? And it's, I guess it was kind of that inquisitive nature of trying to, you know, glean as much information to one day return and, and do this all myself. So uh, after about a year, I, I decided that I wasn't getting fed enough and I wasn't working as hard as I wanted to. So uh, through my connections with, uh, that I had made at Oregon State, I applied around at various jobs and decided to take uh, the one with Advanced Vineyard Systems. And the neat thing about a management company is that since they don't typically own any of their own vineyards or their own winery. They're providing that service to numerous other growers. So we were, you know, we were looking after 22 different vineyards in the mostly Yamhill County area. Uh, so those 22 different vineyard owners sold to, over the course of the eight years that I was there, um, about 80 different wineries. Hmm. So it was the last three years that I was there, I was the harvest coordinator, which it's a fancy terminology for basically coordinating all of the harvesting 
of those 80 wineries, 20 growers, 22 growers, um, and getting it all done within you know that three or four week window during the, uh, the Oregon Pinot Noir um, harvest. And that was the predominant variety that, that we managed uh, was Pinot Noir. Little tiny bit of green, a little bit of Chardonnay, mm -hmm. but it was mostly all Pinot Noir, so it, it's all coming off in a very small amount of time. So having that relationship of you know talking to these winemakers um, it was you know it was like this natural like gateway into okay here's all of their names here's all of their contacts um, and then just you know we were largely in the customer service business so you know you're you're providing the service for the client the vineyard owner but you know it, as an extension the wineries that are buying his fruit I mean that's his livelihood so you know, we were, you know, we were best friends with every winemaker and every vineyard owner and, and uh, you know, every client's friend that, that set, set foot on the property. And most winemakers will visit the vineyard several times mm -hmm. throughout the, uh, the growing season. So every time they would show up, they'd, you know, want to meet with the vineyard manager because he was the one with the boots on the ground and knew the most about the vineyard. So the more time I, you know, stayed with the same vineyards and manage them the more time that I was that guy that that the Ponzi's would show up to with and mm -hmm. and you know ask questions about Lazy River Vineyard or or whatever vineyard it was that the the winemakers were coming to and just I guess that over time you develop these relationships with these people that you know you get to the point where if you know I have a winemaking question or oh hey my uh, my labeler broke down uh, Rob Stewart, can I borrow your labeler? <laughs> you know, um, or you know, I need I need more barrels. Um, Adam Campbell, do you have any you know barrels from El Cove that I can you know buy from you? Yeah, I think we can you know scrape up, you know, half a dozen barrels or something like that. Or, or you know, looking for used equipment. Well, you know, going back to the, some of those guys that you know been around 40 or 50 years. Oh yeah. Here's the uh, here's the first uh, processing chute that we bought 30 years ago. You know, it's all of course it's all stainless steel, so it's you know brand new. Uh, yeah, you can have it for you know 700 bucks. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, just just building those relationships over the years and and uh, you know gleaning little bits of information, uh, you know, getting to deliver the fruit to the winery uh, after it was picked and having you know 15 minutes a half an hour an hour to watch them process that fruit and and see how you know they've been doing it you know on a global standpoint uh, the Oregon wine industry is you know in its infancy but you know still to to watch somebody that their family's been doing it for 25 or 30 years you know I, I planned my first grapes in 2004 I made my first wine in 2005 it was you know I know nothing about making wine when it when it came to you know learning from those guys. So um, it's just uh, time, I guess, and, mm -hmm. and establishing those relationships, and you know, trying to be the one that you know can give them a hand in any way possible. Uh, you know, I remember uh, several times getting done with harvest. You know, maybe we get done picking the grapes at three or four o'clock, and then going to a friend's winery and helping him crush till ten o'clock that night because. You wanted to be a part of, of you know, the whole experience. Um, so just doing that over the years, you know, establishes that that kind of relationship where you can ask those questions of, of people like that. And and if you don't know somebody, then 
it's kind of like how many people do I need to ask to get you know mm -hmm. an audience with Dickie Rath it's like well one of my growers sells to Dickie Rath so perfect <laughs> <laughs> let's have dinner <laughs> so um, that yeah just small steps I guess uh -huh. Well, you talked about being at Advanced Vineyard Systems for eight years. How did you decide it was time to go? Uh, so I established Copper Belt um, mm -hmm. Winery in 2010. Right. And it was largely a hobby at that time. I first started making wine in 2005. And it was kind of one of those things where I made a barrel a year, every year. and. Uh, in 2010, it was one of those things where, maybe it was even the fall of 2009, my wife was like, you need to stop making wine because there's too much of it in our house <laughs> or you need to go commercial. Uh, so I, I knew there was no way I could quit making wine. You know, I, <laughs> I caught that bug when I was a teenager. So it's like you just can't, you can't stop doing what you feel like you were destined to do. Mm -hmm. So. Um, just continuing on with that, it was uh, it was like this natural progression to go and go and go. Um, can you repeat your question again? I lost where I was going on that. <laughs> oh well, I just kind of wanted to know <clears throat> what made you decide to leave Advanced Vineyards. Leave Advanced. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. So just as as that hobby grew over time, I just knew that at some point. I would have to decide to either keep vineyard management as my primary basis of employment or go ahead and focus on on uh, building my own brand. So mm -hmm. it, it was kind of one of those things where I was getting down in the amount of hours that I was working on vineyard management. I think uh, my last year there I was blogging 20 hours a week and any farmer knows that 20 hours a week is not enough to, to you know, sufficiently take care of anything with any mm -hmm. any you know quality in mind so that's I think that's when I decided okay well I'm going to focus on on my own brand well how would you describe copper belt wines then as a brand as a brand um, you know a lot of people ask me where I got the name copper belt they think that I wear this <laughs> copper belt and uh, it's actually an old geographic name. Uh, the northeast corner of Oregon has a lot of copper in the ground. So 100 years ago, they, they called that Eastern Oregon or Baker County Copper Belt. There's a lot of old gold mines over there. There still are. Most of those old gold mines pulled out more copper than gold. So they called it the Copper Belt. Uh, when I tell people that story, they're like, so does that affect the flavor <laughs> of the wines? And I'm like, well, I don't really think so. Because when I think of like, the flavor of copper, I think of like this metallic-y kind of like, you know, bitter flavor. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, I don't, I don't get that in the wines at all. <laughs> uh, so it's, I wouldn't say that it necessarily, a, a, you know, affects flavor or anything like that, but um, it just all, uh, I wouldn't say that particular name has a lot of influence on, on the grapes grown there, mm -hmm. um, but I would say the high elevation of the region definitely has something to influence on the wine grapes themselves. 
So the original vineyard, when we planted it in 2004, uh, I have only sprayed two fungicide sprays in that vineyard since I planted it. Wow. Um, and found powdery mildew twice. Um, and that's uh, 2004, 2016, 12 years. Um, in the Willamette Valley, we're spraying, you know, a half a dozen times a summer to mm -hmm. keep uh, powdery mildew down, uh, more so if it's a, you know, a conducive year to growing powdery mildew. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that the combination of the heat and the wind and the dryness, I think that that mitigates the the, the mildew or the rot or, or the, the fungus that's growing. But I think it also contributes a lot into the style of, of the wines. Um, the elevation of my estate vineyard is 3,400 feet. And I think that extra elevation condenses the growing season quite a bit, but we also get a lot of heat as well. So it's kind of fun. The wines that come off of my vineyard have a lot of acid retention. So there's a lot of bright fruits and stuff like that. Whereas in comparison, the Columbia Valley, which probably has the same amount of heat units that I do, uh, it's, it's really hard to maintain that acidity. Mm -hmm. uh, so the fruit that I work with out of the Columbia Valley, a lot of that I have to pick earlier than I might want to, to retain that, acid, that acidity or add back during the winemaking process. Um, whereas I don't have to do that with, with the wines that I, I've made thus far out of, out of my state vineyard. So I think that's going to lead to more longevity. Uh, the first wine that I made in 2007 off the estate vineyard was horrendous. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it would kill an alcoholic. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, the 2008 vintage that came off of that, which was the second year in production, uh, I still have some of that in bottle, and it's aging quite nice. Uh, I would still say that it's quite young, um, mm -hmm. especially when pulling the cork. So I, I kind of, I call that my 25-year wine, so to say, uh, in that it will probably taste really good when it's 25 years old. Uh, the 2010 vintage uh, off of that uh, was again a, a really spectacular vintage um, and it's still very much a young wine mm -hmm. in, in bottle. Uh, the 2012, which is on current release right now, um, definitely a lot more refined tannins, maybe because the vines are starting to get older, but uh, still has a lot of that, that good um, acid backbone and, and good fruit. Um, so I think those those wines have a lot of good structure, but not aggressive. Uh, so you don't need a steak knife to, to cut them before you drink them. Um, <laughs> more of a fruit forward wine. But yeah, I, I, I think definitely the heat and the wind and the, the harsh growing climate over there definitely adds something unique to the varietals. Um, I, I still have yet to find a wine and I'm, I'm no connoisseur of wine by any means, but I've yet to find a wine that matches those same sorts of flavor profiles. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are some similarities, uh, but, but as far as like finding, yep, that's, that's the flavor profile that, that I know from home, whether that's the sagebrush or not, I don't, I don't really know, but um, there's, there's definitely something unique about it. And um, I'm really anxious to see that industry grow and, Mm -hmm. and uh, find out what, you know, what those wines will be like in 25 years, for sure. So. Yeah. 
Well, the Snake River AVA is pretty isolated. Until recently, it was just you out there. So what are the kind of the challenges of you know, being so far away from your colleagues here in the Willamette Valley and down in Corvallis? Uh, I'd say the biggest challenge is not being able to ask your neighbor what he's doing or what, what he did mm -hmm. on a bad year, for example. Um, you know, I, the, the Snake River AVA as a whole is a two-state shared AVA, um, Idaho and Oregon. And, um, you know, the Idaho wine industry has been established for a number of years now, and there's, there's several growers over there and um, well-known wine producers. Uh, but we're still, my vineyards are still two and a half, three hours drive time right. away. Um, if you had a plane, you could probably get there in 15 or 20 minutes um, <laughs> across the Snake River. Uh, but I, I would say that definitely the biggest isolation factor that I run into is, is not being able to ask somebody for advice like what would you do, um, or what did you do mm -hmm. uh, before? Uh, I, I mean, my car can drive just as fast as any other car, so I can, you know, get down to the Willamette Valley or the Columbia Valley or other growing regions if I if I need like a piece of equipment, or um, you know, design advice or winemaking advice, something like that. I can, I can usually or pick up a phone call. But as far as the actual like growing of the grapes over there that's that's largely just you know it's a game of chance mm -hmm. um, you know relying on what I've learned thus far in, in my 12 year old vineyard and trying to remember what what I did wrong so many times and trying not to repeat that too many times um, it's, and especially now with two other growers that are relying on me and my family's knowledge of, of growing grapes, you know, they, they want to know, oh, well, what are we supposed to do about this? And it's like, you don't want to tell them, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you, you, you do the, uh, the deferral where um, that's a really good question. And um, let me talk with some of my colleagues in the valley or, you know, other growing regions and let me get back to you. Uh, and then, you, you know, you just go back and you, you know, you, you, you review your notes and you talk to your friends and you, you try to get the best, um, the best answer, you know, the best guess. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's still all hypothesis over there. It's like, you know, what if we did this? Then maybe this will happen. Uh, yeah. You know, that's, that's definitely with, well, how's the, what's the best trellising for that area? You know, my, my vineyard is, uh, is cane prune VSP. Uh, and that's what I found to, that works really well for my vineyard. But the vineyards that I'm growing are 20 miles away for these other people, uh, about a thousand feet less in elevation and in totally different soil structures, even mm -hmm. though it's still all within the Snake River AVA. Um, you know, there's, there's a huge conglomeration of, of different growing types over there. It was an ancient lake bed, so you've got the sediment from that. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of volcanic um, soils from when the, the crater lake explosion blew up. Um, mm -hmm. We have a lot of uh, glacial deposits from the last ice age. So there's like just my 
biggest farming challenge over there is all the round river rock that we find <laughs> on these hillside vineyards because they were, you know, 20,000 year old glacier deposits that, you know, just that's where the glacial, glacial deposits stopped and now you've got all this, you know, round river rock in your vineyard that is horrible to farm through. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, just taking each challenge one step at a time and, and, uh, and going that way. Uh, you know, the world's getting smaller and smaller, so from a uh, gaining information and, um, you know, trying to choose varietals and trying to get the right equipment and, and you know, all of that, it's, it's definitely getting easier and easier. I don't think I would have wanted to try to do this 100 years ago, especially <laughs> over there. Um, but uh, um, it, it works so far. Oh, it is still working. Um, and, and that's, you know, I just take it one step at a time and as long as my vineyards don't completely die and my wine doesn't turn to vinegar and people still like to drink it, then I'm gonna just keep going. <laughs> yeah. And you're not completely alone. You also have your family a part of the business as well. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, and I, I definitely couldn't have done it without them. Um, their background is such that um, wine is definitely foreign to them still. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they started learning about wine the same time I did uh, when I was a teenager. Um, my, uh, both my parents uh, attended Oregon State. My dad uh, focused on animal husbandry or animal sciences today. Uh, went back to the homestead and started, well, continued on with the, the ranching and farming. When I was born, we had uh, almost 1,000 head of cattle and 800 head of sheep. Um, as uh, time went on, we downsized our herds quite a bit. In 1987, my parents uh, put up a greenhouse to use as a lambing shed. And that same spring, they started garden, garden starts for my grandfather, um, tomatoes and corn and peppers, things like that. And uh, later that spring, there was a feed store in the area that I'm growing grapes now, Richland, Oregon, that uh, called up my parents and said, hey, we heard that you had grown some vegetable starts. My supplier couldn't you know, provide tomatoes or corn or whatever they were looking for at the time. Um, I'll, I'll buy whatever you, you have left mm -hmm. over. So that started uh, Eagle Cap Nursery, which was my parents' <laughs> uh, greenhouse nursery business. Um, they grew that from 1987 to 2008 when they sold it. Uh, but that, that was very much a, a growing plants and flowers and stuff background. Uh, I guess it gave me an appreciation for, for growing plants and, and stuff like that. So that maybe that's why I you know, wanted to fo focus on the horticulture side of things. But um, you know, when I was a kid, my dad was, you know, he was a whiskey and, and light beer drinker, which that's probably the vast majority of everybody in the Baker County area still is is light beer and whiskey. Uh, so the whole wine thing is, is still very new um, mm -hmm. and, and very much a new concept for everybody over there. Uh, but yeah, they've, they've been incredibly supportive. Um, in 2008, before they sold the business, they asked me if I wanted to come back and run it. And I was like, nope. <laughs> I wanna grow grapes and make wine. <laughs> uh, so they were, uh, they were on board with that. Um, so I, I hired 
my dad in 2010 uh, as my uh, essentially my associate winemaker. He does a lot of the day-to-day -day things. Um, he's also my, my vineyard manager, largely. Um, he and I started the vineyard management business over there four years ago. So it's, it's one of those things where I, I definitely couldn't do it without their support. But as far as, you know, saying, hey, Dad, what, uh, what do we need to do about growing these grapes? He's like, you're the one with the degree. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you spent the last 15 years in the Loyola Valley. <laughs> so it's, you know, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's been a lot of fun having my, my family support um, the business. When I first wanted to plant the vines in the backyard in 2004, my grandfather uh, went to the public library to look up books. Uh, I think that was probably the first time since he was at Oregon State uh, mm -hmm. during the Korean War that he had went to the library and, <laughs> you know, looked at books to, you know, learn about grape growing. Um, he still goes out and prunes and ties down the vines for me in the wintertime. And he's my, my watchdog when the, uh, the Hungarian partridges come in to eat the fruit in the fall. Um, it's kind of dual, you know, bird control and breakfast in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I, there's yeah, there's no way I could could have done it without my family for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and your mother is also part of it as well. Yeah, she works yeah. on the marketing side. She correct? she does a lot of the marketing side. She was actually responsible for doing all of the the TTB and government licensing to get the winery off and going. Uh, when she submitted like the whole application when we first got the license, uh, the people on the other side they were like, "Who did you hire to you know do up all this stuff?" Oh no, I did it myself. And they were like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and of course, there's there's no manual that says, "Okay, this is how you start a winery," right. and these are all of the licensing that you need, and these are all of the. Uh, you know, all the paperwork that needs to be filed, and these are all the government agencies that you need to ask permission from. There, there's like no, like, you know, establishing a winery for dumb, dummies, you know, it, that, you know, steps through all of that. So it's like, you just go on good faith that, that you're doing everything that you're required to do. I remember two years into it, we get this letter from some agency saying that we owed back taxes. And I was like, great, we owe back taxes. Um, okay, uh, for what? <laughs> so uh, they had, you know, they had explained that, that there was this, you know, I don't remember if it was the Oregon Wine Board grape tax or something like that, but we had no idea of its existence. Mm -hmm. So for the last, you know, for the first two years that we were in operation, it was just like, you know, yeah, we thought that we had everything done. Luckily, you know, most people are very forgiving and they're like, oh yeah, so this is what it is and this is what it's for. It's like, oh, fantastic, great. Here's the back taxes. Thank you for letting us know. Um, you know, where can I find these forms for next year and all this stuff. So it, it's very much a, you know, you cross your fingers and you take the jump and you hope that, you know, you don't hit any surprises on the way down. Um, but yeah, she's she's very much the behind the scenes, you know, orchestrator of all of that. Um, she helps a lot with the the, the Snake River AVA marketing side mm -hmm. um, and sales. I, I do a lot of the Willamette Valley sales and marketing, but 
Yeah, it's it's very much a family effort, especially when it comes time to bottle. You know, it's like the whole family gets together and bottle, or you know, during crush, like my my grandfather's still over there, you know, sorting out fruit that you know that's bad and stuff like that. But um, yeah, very very much a, a family operation for sure. Huh. Well, since it's a family operation, how did that first crush go? How did that first um, kind of year in making wine go for you guys? Because I imagine there may have been some kinks in the process. So luckily, like the very first one was my experimentation in my garage in Philomath. Uh, actually, it was technically it was the apartment in Corvallis even before that. Uh, so I understood the process mm -hmm. and uh, and from basically 2005 to 2010, it was, you know, me learning in my garage in the Willamette Valley. And, and when I decided to, to kick off the business, uh, you know, my family was a poor farming family, so there was no, there was no big capital, you know, investment, you know, we're, we're dirt rich and money poor. It's, we've always, you know, known, you know, we got a lot of land, but no money. Uh, so to start the winery in, in 2010, I sold my pickup truck, and that money that I had from my my Chevy, uh, that's what I used to to purchase a destimmer crusher, and um, you know some fermentation bins, and then uh, I, I think I I purchased uh, like two tons of Pinot Noir mm -hmm. at the time, and and luckily. At that point, it was it was more of like, "Hey, you're doing it, yeah." <laughs> so the growers were like really, you know, really happy for me. So I, you know, I bought two tons of Pinot Noir for like a thousand dollars that year, mm -hmm. which you know, normal market prices at the time, at least of everybody that I knew and was growing with, you know, they were selling their Pinot for twenty five hundred a ton mm -hmm. on the low side, all the way up to, uh, you know, four thousand dollars a ton. So. Um, that $8,000 that I had working with when I sold my truck wouldn't have gone very far, but luckily they were like, oh yeah, we're, we're, we'll give you a discount, no problem. Um, so it was that was kind of fortuitous as well. So it wasn't a lot of fruit that I was working with that first year. Mm -hmm. And you know, my, my dad and my mom had, had been down every once in a while to help me you know, making garage wine, which largely was all you know, handy stimming and crushing, uh, so they, they knew how all of that worked, but it was still like I, I remember writing out um, how to make wine, mm -hmm. a written manual by Travis Cook <laughs> <laughs> uh, that I gave to my dad um, that first crush because I was I was here managing vineyards, so I I couldn't buy my fruit and then take it over there to the winery and do all of the the crushing and fermentation. So it was that first year it was it was all him relying on the information that I provided to him. And uh, it, was, it was like, if this is going to work, it's going to work. And if it's not, it's not. Um, so let's just give it a shot. And the, my 2010 Pinot Noir is still fantastic. I, I open up a bottle of it every once in a while. But it was only, uh, I think I only did like 120 cases that first year. Mm -hmm. So it, it was, it was, a small enough amount that it wasn't overwhelming. It was large enough that we could get a taste of, you know, some actual winemaking um, processes on our own, uh, not you know seeing what happened in the winery. 
-hmm. or in somebody else's winery. Uh, and then just every year since then, it's grown a little bit, a little bit. Uh, this last year, I took a big leap. I went from basically 600 cases a year up to 1,200 cases a year. Wow. Um, in preparation to, you know, go full time and, and do this. Uh, I don't really have a, um, an end goal of where I want the winery to be. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I'd love it to be successful enough that I can provide some jobs for some people. And then I'd, I'd love the, the Oregon side of the Snake River ABA to really grow and, and you know, flourish and thrive, uh, you know, to kind of rebuild that economy over there. For the last 100 years, Bakers had 10,000 people and 100,000 head of cattle. Uh, <laughs> not that I really want the population to grow a whole lot more, but I want to I want to provide something different for people to do other than farming and ranching. Um, and if the winery is successful enough to be able to do that, then that's, that's all I ask for. And pay the bills, of course. Has <laughs> <laughs> to pay the bills. Um, so yeah, it's just, you know, and each, each year is a learning curve for both my dad and I mm -hmm. um, in the day-to-day uh, the -day production. But uh, yeah, it, it's working so far. We've made some mistakes. Uh, we've, we tried to make a sweet Riesling in 2012 that became a sparkling Riesling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was, uh, that was one of those things where, okay, let's, let's wait till we have um, more suitable facilities <laughs> uh, before we try to go down that road again. Uh, you know, so uh, amongst all of that, we're still we're still trying to grow and we're still trying to, you know, establish the brand and and the the region is maybe a wine growing region. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm Rachel Woody and I'm here with Travis Cook. We're doing part two, and we're going to start off this part with. What are your grape growing or winemaking philosophies? Uh, grape growing philosophies to start. Um, I would say that uh, let the grapes do what they're going to do. Uh, don't screw around with them too much. Uh, as far as choosing where to plant, do as much research as you can um, and learn the uh, surrounding environment and what challenges that might pose to those grape varieties. Um, uh, the rest is, you know, it's farming. You know, every year is going to be different uh, and you can't change that, so don't try. Uh, we can, as wine growers, do our best to, you know, get those varieties through to harvest. Um, you know, I, I try to, you know, keep it simple, stupid in a way. Um, every time I've tried to do something that's just totally foreign or totally, you know, off the books or not normally done, uh, it's usually come back to bite me mm -hmm. um, in the sense that, you know, oh, well, let's, let's try to grow this grape variety in a region that it's not suited for. Yeah, that's going to work well. Um, or uh, what if we do um, this kind of trellis system? Uh, and then you, uh, you send your tractor driver through and he tears out 10 posts in a row and 15 vines and it's like, well, that, that worked really well. So it's like, you know, it, it's, it's uh, again, it's, it's farming, so it's not easy. Um, 
but yeah, just, you know, not to say that you have to conform to what everybody else is doing, because obviously I'm growing grapes in a region that nobody else is growing grapes in, but, you know, try not to say grow grapes in a region that nobody else is doing and do it a totally different way than the other people that traditionally grow those grapes. Um, you know, take it one step at a time and see how it goes. Um, I think the same thing is true on the winemaking side. Uh, I tend to let the, the fruit speak for itself. Um, I, you know, winemaking can be as complicated as you want it to be or it can be as simple as you want it to be. I mean, it's, it's fermented grape juice. I mean, there's nothing really special about fermented grape juice. Uh, so you can, you know, hype it up any way you want, but that's what it is. Uh, it's, it's trying to figure out the, the way that that fermented grape juice speaks to you. Um, you know, that's, I think that's probably one of the, the biggest attractors for me in making wine is that it's, it's like one of the only fermented beverages that is living still, you know. Beer was living and then you killed it in the boil. Um, distilled spirits, obviously there's, you know, that's been cooked out as well. Um, so it's like you have this truly unique living thing in a bottle. And it's like, wh why would you try to make an Oregonian something that he's not? Why would you try to, um, you know, make uh, a Texan cowboy somebody that he's not? It, it you know, uh, I think the same thing is true with you know growing grapes and making wine. It's like, why would you want to take this perfectly formed cluster uh, from? you know, a spectacular growing region and try to do something to it that it's not. Uh, you know, a lot of people want to take perfectly good Pinot Noir and make Cabernet Sauvignon out of it. It's like, you know, why would you want this over-extracted fruit bomb from something that it's not supposed to be an overly extracted fruit bomb? I'm not saying those wines aren't, you know, enjoyable in their own right, but I, I think that um, each unique grape variety has its own unique story to tell, uh, especially, you know, varietals that are more terroir-driven and, and picked and, and grown in a varietal-specific um, style. Um, I think that's just something really neat and fascinating. Uh, everybody's own winemaking style is going to have its own unique signature to it. I, I've seen time and time again you take the, the same grapes from the same rows and you split them over two different wineries and then you try to keep everything controlled, you know, the same yeast, the same barrels, the same everything. And at the end of it, you get two totally different wines. Um, you know, it's like you're going to put your own signature on that wine regardless. Um, why try to put more of a, you know, spin on it and, and do something that's, you know, maybe I wouldn't say not done before, but just something that might not be the best fit for that particular wine or wine style. I think there's a lot that we have to learn yet in making wine, especially in the new world where we don't have laws to conform to. Um, I think that makes it exciting 
because you, you can do all of these things. I mean, if somebody wants to blend Pinot Noir, Cabernet Franc, and and Syrah together to make a red blend, then they can do it. Um, you know, there's there's no uh, there's no overarching government authority saying nope. Bordeaux varieties do not mix with Burgundian varieties, or whatever the case may be. Um, I, I, but I, again, I think it's you know, let the grapes speak for themselves. Um, you're you're always going to be given the hundred percent. So that cluster comes off of the grape variety or off of the plant, shows up at your winery at a hundred percent. Now that grape cluster might not be in the best of quality, but you're starting out from the highest point. Okay. Um, your job as a winemaker is to try to keep it at 100% for as long as possible because you're getting a diminishing quality throughout the entire experience. So it's like, how do I do this without screwing it up too fast, you know? Because mm-hmm. um, that wine's going to turn to vinegar sometime, you know? If it's 200 years from now, then, then it's 200 years from now, and that's fantastic. Um, you know, if it's two days from now, well, that, that's sad. That's happened to me before. Uh, so I think is our, you know, my philosophy as, as a winemaker is, you know, take what you've been given and, and try not to screw it up too much and, and let the grapes, both from the area that you get them and the varieties and the, and the, the clusters into wine, let, let them speak for themselves. You're going you're gonna to put your name or your signature on that, that winemaking style regardless of what you do. Um, yeah, and just try not to mess it up too much. <laughs> Since you've had experience with a lot of different aspects of growing the grapes, making the wine, starting your own winery, uh, managing other vineyards, what have been some of your most favorite parts of those aspects and some of your least favorite? Mm, least favorite is selling the wine. And I would say that it's because it's such a challenge to um, compete with what's already there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the global market, you can find some absolutely spectacular wines from areas that have been growing grapes for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost like it's a, a slap in the face that you would even try to compete with that. Um, but at the same time, it's you know you want to be part of something greater, and uh, um, but but trying to trying to at least make a name for yourself enough that that's what you can do to support you know your family. Uh, that's probably my least favorite part of it is is the the effort and the energy into establishing it. Now going to like a wine festival or being in the tasting room and having that conversation with a potential buyer, that's a lot of fun. Um, being able to share your story with somebody, that is a lot of fun. Uh, but as far as like trying to say, okay, can I send you home a bottle of this wine? You know, can you pay the you know, 30 or 40 or $100 or whatever you're asking? Um, that kind of chimes on my conscience just a little bit, but at the same time, it's like, I, I need to be able to, for me to keep telling my story and to keep doing this, I do need, you know, 
the wine buyer support. So um, that's like a conflict of interest for me there in a way. And I would say that's my least favorite part. Um, the favorite parts, there are so many. Uh, the standouts are in the spring uh, when the, the new buds are just breaking bud and they're opening up and you've made it through that, that frost season and you, you have like the beginning of the next vintage uh, in this tiny little bud that's, that's popped out and is growing. Um, every year that's just so much fun, especially like uh, right now walking through the vineyard and, and you, see, uh, you see new shoots that are just starting to wake up in certain varieties and then others that, you know, they're already a foot tall. Um, it's like that, uh, that it's new life, you know, every spring, it's a new vintage and the anticipation of what that's going to bring, you know, and all of its challenges and all of its glory. I mean, is it going to be a, a hundred point, you know, wine growing vintage mm -hmm. again? Is it going to be this, you know, spectacular vintage that everybody's really excited about? Or is there going to be another one that's just so difficult that you're just doing everything you can to get the harvest in? Um, I think that spring anticipation is, is definitely a, a really exciting part. Um, uh, you know, throughout the entire growing season, it's always fun going out in the vineyard and seeing how things are going. But I, I think definitely the next, the next most favorite part is is when the harvest is coming on. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how good the year was. Um, if it's not good that last three weeks, doesn't matter. <laughs> You know, I've seen time and time again that, you know, you have a spectacular growing year and the last three weeks just falls apart. Uh, and it's everything you can do to keep that fruit from rotting on the vine or, or getting it in. Um, but again, it's like that level of excitement and anticipation that like what we've worked for all season long is, is just about to like um, come to the point and we're gonna get that harvest in. Uh, so the crush is, is like an exciting time for me. Uh, you know, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of, you know, sleepless nights. Uh, I remember in 2011, I think it was, uh, we were trying to get everything in before the winter. Uh, it, was, it was a late growing season here in the Willamette Valley. And uh, as the vineyard manager, we were the first ones in the field and we were the last ones to leave. So, uh, you know, we'd show up at 5.30 in the morning to get everything prepped for the pickers to show up. And uh, because it was so condensed and so late, we would pick till dark. And, you know, most seasons, you know, we're done by noon picking for the day. But the, the harvesters would stay in the vineyard until nighttime, and then we'd give them headlamps to finish out. Wow. Um, and then you're, you know, you get as big a crew in as you possibly can to get that fruit off before the rains, and then you stick all that fruit in the barn, but it still has to go to the winery that same day. So, you know, your, your pickers go home at 8 o'clock at night, uh, and, then, and then you're there making sure that that fruit gets on the trailers to get delivered to the winery. So uh, for like a week straight, uh, I was leaving the vineyard at uh, 1 o'clock in the morning, 1.30 in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, 2.30 in the morning. Like each day it progressively got earlier and earlier, or later and later in the morning that I would leave the vineyard just to go to sleep for a couple of hours to come back to the vineyard. Right. <laughs> um, you know, like the anticipation of, of what the crush is going to do um, and how it's going to, you know, 
come out. Like that's uh, that's definitely an exciting time. Um, and then you know, fast forward, you know, 14 days or whatever the fermentation cycle is for a given wine, um, and that nouveau wine that is coming off the press. Uh, some people just don't have the taste for it or they don't like all of the other intricacies that are going on because there's a bunch of funky stuff that goes on. You know, the yeasts are dying and, and they're giving off, you know, all sorts of unpleasant aromas in the wine, of course. And, uh, but then, like, you have this fresh fruit and it's like, you, it's like your first taste of that still wine that, that you're going to have, that you're going to put in the barrel and you're going to age. And it's like tasting that wine and going, oh yeah, that's where it's at. That's going to be so <laughs> stinking good in a couple of years. Um, or you're, you know, on the flip side, like I've had, you know, wines. Oh darn, that didn't that didn't come out the way I was hoping to. Or, you know, even the flip side, you get that stuff, the fruit in, and it's it's ugly and it's hideous, and you, you know, you you do what you can as a winemaker to get it through the fermentation and, and it comes off the press and you're like, wow, that worked out. <laughs> like, that's exciting, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's mm -hmm. really cool. Um, you know, and all of the smells and, the, you know, the things that are going on and the excitement and, you know, the emotions that are wrapped up in that, you know, six to eight weeks of crush and fermentation is, um, it's like this high that, it's hard to describe to somebody that hasn't been there and hasn't done that. Mm -hmm. um, so those are definitely my my two favorite parts of, of the wine industry: is the spring growing season when everything's waking up, and then uh, you know the the culmination of the year at, at harvest. Um, you know, I, I love being in the cellar and I I love seeing how the wines are aging and and there's there's so many fun parts, but those are definitely like it's like this is worth having a party over, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, we made it through the winter without any winter damage. Hooray! <laughs> Let's open a bottle of Dom Perignon. <laughs> and then, you know, you get through to harvest and it's, in the it's in the barn and it's fermenting and you're like yay let's open a bottle of Dom Perignon <laughs> even though I, I can't I can't afford that stuff but it's still it's like this you know mini party that you have every year um, the the small celebrations like those are those are definitely my my favorite parts for sure so I love that <clears throat> uh, do you have a favorite varietal to make and drink Oh boy, um, boy! I have a passion and a heart for Pinot Noir, even though that's not what I grow in my own vineyard. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's—I think really it could be any varietal, could be somebody's favorite. Uh, the more you learn about something, the more you can fall in love with it. And because I've been exposed to Pinot Noir the most, um, I think that's why I prefer Pinot Noir, um, at least from a varietal standpoint. I would, I don't know as it's necessarily my favorite to drink, although it's probably, if I have to rank them, you know, the top, my top one wine would probably be like a tie between, you know, I, I really love a fantastic Chenin Blanc mm. um, from the Loire uh, Valley in France. Um, Pinot Noir is is definitely right up there. Um, 
than a really well-made Syrah, especially mm -hmm. something from the Rhone. I think those are probably my top three right now. Um, Chenin Blanc is more recent, um, but Pinot Noir and Syrah have definitely been my two favorite varieties uh, for the long haul. Um, I'd say that Pinot, though, still stands out because it's such a pain in the butt. Uh, it really is. It's, it's not an easy grape to grow well, um, nor is it an easy grape to make good Pinot Noir wine mm -hmm. with, at least varietal specific, um, and have that varietal character show through the wine. Um, you know, it's unique attributes and flavor profiles and, and how it expresses where it's grown. I never believed and bought into that whole terroir thing until I was uh, at a winery a few years ago. And the winemaker said, okay, uh, this is Cologne 777 Pinot Noir uh, from our estate vineyard. Mm -hmm. This 777, same age, is grown in Willikinsey soils. And this one is grown in Jory soils. Side by side, two blocks. Uh, this is in the Dundee Hills. And uh, both were made the same exact way in the same cooperages, um, neutral oak, uh, same winemaker, same yeast, same everything. And like you could taste the difference wow. in the soils. Like it was, it was like this mind blowing aha moment that, you know, it was like the first time in my, my wine career that somebody showed me the definitive difference between what place does to a wine and what soils do to a wine. And I, I can't say definitively that Pinot Noir is the variety in the world that speaks place the most because I have, you know, I don't have enough experience with, you know, the thousands of grape varietals out there. But definitely here um, in the Pacific Northwest, I feel that Pinot Noir is the grape variety that can speak place more so than any other variety and and the story that it can tell uh, without even hearing a word is I think incredible and uh, I think that's what always draws me back you know every time I open up a bottle of Pinot Noir whether it's a you know a value priced Pinot Noir made by A to Z or it's you know a single vineyard designate um, made by Adelsheim uh, they both can speak, you know, volumes about the grape variety in them, as well as you know, the area and the winemaking style. Um, and it's like you you can't get enough of that if that's where your passion is and your desire. Uh, my brother-in-law collects baseball cards. And he's got a garage full of baseball cards, and like. He'll continue probably doing that till he dies because there's always an, another baseball card out there. There's always you know that that one limited production, you know, one of Babe Ruth or whatever, and it's like that's the same thing with with wine and, mm -hmm. and Pinot Noir. It's like there's there's so many of them. It's like you could you know you could taste a new Pinot Noir every day for the rest of your life and probably not taste them all. Uh, mm -hmm even if you lived well into your hundreds, and I think that's so cool. Uh, and, and the fact that each one of them is probably gonna be uniquely different is, 
it's probably why Pinot is still my favorite, even though I'm making my overall production, Pinot Noir is only about 20% of my winemaking production, but it's still just like this, it's like my, my addiction is Pinot Noir. <laughs> <laughs> Are you consciously a pioneer, and what does that feel like? Am I consciously a pioneer? Uh, when I look at it on paper and I see that, you know, I was the first one to produce a commercial or plant a commercial grape growing vineyard in the Snake River AVA on the Oregon side, and I was the first one to establish other commercial um, uh, vineyards, and I was the first one to establish a, a winery on the Oregon side of the Snake River, yeah, technically speaking, that's pioneering. Um, so in the back of my head, I, I'm reminded like I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a pioneer. Like that's you know that's really cool. <laughs> but I don't think of myself as a pioneer because um, you know the the pioneers were the Romans or you know even before that you know the people that were growing grapevines and the Tigris and Euphrates you know valley of Mesopotamia. I mean those people were the pioneers. You know, you can go up and down the Rhone and find vineyards that they established thousands of years ago. Uh, we're just, you know, taking what they did and you know spreading it throughout the the world. Uh, so like we're just the ones following suit. You know, we're not the pioneers. We're not the, um, you know, we're not the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition. You know, we're we're, yeah, we're. We're getting our, you know, wine grape, you know, wine grapes, you know, planted in areas that they've never been planted before. But, you know, making wine is, you know, since it's so old, even the even the pioneers of the Oregon wine industry, in my opinion, aren't true. The, aren't the true pioneers? Um, but in the same at the same face, we we are too because we're we're doing it different. We're doing it in a relatively new area. And we're, you know, we're we're taking the risk. We're putting, the, you know, the first first step forward just to try it out. Um, you know, uh, most of my other um, colleagues that came out of Oregon State, you know, they most of them all have their own wine label now, or they have their own winery, or they're working for wineries, and uh, they're all, for the most part, in areas that have been doing it for you know decades now. And that's, that's really fun to see everybody kind of do their own thing. Um, I definitely would say that I'm the unique one out of the bunch, stepping away from what I know to be, I wouldn't say easy, but like known. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> last year, we, we finally decided to take out an operating loan to increase the business. I'm pretty sure that would have been a lot easier to do in an established grape growing area. Um, <laughs> so it was one of those things where I had to, I had to be able to show diversification so that if for some reason the winery didn't work out, mm -hmm. that there was still viability in what I was doing in another thing. It's like, yeah, my winery could easily be converted into a machine shop, you know, no problem. <laughs> So uh, you know, 
yeah, there, there's there's those you know unique aspects of, of pioneering. Um, it does make me really excited, uh, and I don't mean that in a, in the conceited sort of way. Like, but hearing my story um, and trying to view that from an outsider's perspective, um, or even the people that live around the area where the winery is, and and you know, hearing their enthusiasm and, and excitement. Um, May 6th, we're going to do the grand opening of our first tasting room. Uh, it's in downtown Baker City, right across the street from the Geyser Grand Hotel. And just to like see the BuzzFeed on Facebook, is, is that's really exciting. Um, I mean, we're the first wine tasting room in Baker City. You know, there might have been one before Prohibition, but uh, not to anybody else's knowledge. But uh, like that's that's really exciting, and and to be a part of that, even if I'm not the one that's actually doing it, just to be a part of that is really exciting. And I think that's why I was attracted to the Willamette Valley. It's like, you know, most of the people that first started growing grapes here in the Willamette Valley are are still alive. You know, you can still like talk to them, and uh, just being a part of their story is is really cool and really exciting. So. Um, do I consider myself a pioneer? Yes and no. It's <laughs> a good answer. Was there another part to that question, or was that it? Oh, what does it feel like? But I, I think you would speak to that. Yeah, um, it's exciting and terrifying at the same yeah. time. Um, you know, I think fear stems from the unknown, and there's a lot of unknowns in what I'm doing right now. Uh, but at the same time, that's that's really exciting. <laughs> in addition to the new tasting room, do you have other current projects happening right now or organizations that you help out with? So uh, the current to-do list for myself is, yeah, get the new tasting room open. Uh, but we're also breaking ground on a new winery over there. Mm. So in 2010, I renovated a detached garage and got all the licensing approval for that garage. It was a 16 by 23 foot single car garage. Um, and then uh, shortly thereafter, I bought an insulated shipping container to become my barrel room. So that was right next to the garage. And then shortly thereafter, I converted my great grandmother's old garage, which was right next to that one, um, into uh, um, my covered crush pad and, and dry goods storage area. Um, you know, all of that took up about 500 square feet, all of that stuff. Um, and it got to the point where I needed to, you know, add on or, or keep going. And I had the option to, you know, close in the covered crush pad and extend that a little bit. Or it was young enough in its infancy that I could, I could afford to probably build a legitimate structure with a grand plan in mind. Um, you know, in 2010, it was just, OK, let's, let's do what we can on the least amount of funds possible to get it off the ground and see how this goes. And, and now, uh, you know, going on six years later, um, I have the opportunity to go back to the drawing board in a way to design my facility um, and also have a, more of a grand plan in mind. 
and and that's really exciting that um, we're going to build. A, I mean, it's not overly large, but it's uh, it's 3,600 square feet. Um, it's going to be a, a four-room building with a, a lab in, integrated into it as well, a, boral, a barrel room and a, a warehouse, a, a big um, fermentation and production floor, and then a, a tasting room attached to it. And uh, I can build that in a, uh, in a budget-friendly way that um, I can then add on to it in the future and still have it be a very cohesive working uh, winery. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you get to go around and visit some of the first wineries that were built, uh, you can see where they've like added on their own little like, you know, okay, this wing was established then and, and this was, you know, this was the original barrel room here and now it's this and now it's this. And, and, and when I went to go make the decision, I, I got to ask a lot of those people, you know, if, if you had it to do differently, what would you do? And, um, you know, most of them said that if, if they would have had, like, the end result in mind, um, they probably would have, like, built it differently. Um, although, you know, a, a lot of those people that were that first and second generation winemakers, they, they really didn't have a lot of money to work with either, not like a lot of the the outside investments coming in now where they build these multi-million dollar structures that are state-of-the-art and they're just they're amazing architectural feats of engineering when you walk into them. Um, most of them are, you know, a hodgepodge of, you know, like Lincoln Logs. Okay, let's put this one here and okay, let's shove that there. And it's like trying to figure out how to put your, your erector set together uh, kind of wineries and uh, they have a lot of history and story behind them. Um, they're not always efficient as far as like being able to necessarily, not necessarily produce the finest wine, but to be able to do it in the, you know, the least costly manner um, or the least, you know, invasive manner. I, I know several people like the only way into their barrel room is, you know, you pack the barrel down there by hand, you know, and you stack it up on the shelf and then you have to pump it out to get it back up to where you're going to be fermenting. And, and it's like, you know, that's, that's great and it works and if that was my only option I would continue doing it but um, building the new winery is is something that I have the unique experience opportunity to like start fresh again mm -hmm. go back five years when I first started um, with a little more you know uh, funds supporting me and uh, and do it right and then hopefully have something that I can you know then have a long-term goal on. So that's a big project. Uh, we're going to break ground in, uh, in about 14 days um, is when we'll start doing the, uh, finally got all the permits and everything done for that project. So um, that's going to be a really big one. Um, trying to uh, move back home from the Willamette Valley full-time is, uh, is another big project step that uh, my wife and I are considering doing um, soon. Uh, let's see. Other projects. So four years ago my father and I started um, our own vineyard management company over there on the Oregon side of the Snake River ABA and we have two vineyards now that we manage. Uh, so that's a new project for sure that is growing. It's amazing how many people want to plant grapes over there. 
uh, luckily you tell them how much it costs and what's involved, most of them tend to say, great, I'll let somebody else do it. Um, but I mean, I think we've got three people that le legitimately want to plant more vines over there and, and want to, uh, you know, and have the funds and the, the resources to be able to do it. But it's still, because it's still a brand new growing area, I, that's a lot of money to gamble with. And I, I tend to tell people, it's like, give me, give me another year or two to make sure that these other vineyards are gonna do well and perform well. Because um, I want to be a good steward of um, of their land and their resources. That's, I think, a, what a lot of people forget about farming is it's like you have to be a good steward of the land on the farming practices side, but you also have to be a good steward on the economic side, otherwise nothing's sustainable. So it's like taking both of those hand in hand is, is pretty important to me, mm -hmm. especially growing up on the homestead that's been in the family for over 100 years now. Mm -hmm. um, that longevity for everybody that, you know, it would be great if the vines that I'm planting today will be around 100 years from now. Um, that would be just really cool. But for that to happen, you have to, you know, like be wise-minded, I guess, and, and not just go out there willy-nilly and, and do it. So um, those are my main projects, obviously raising a family. I have a two-year-old son and another one on the way. So that's a, that's a project that a lot of people partake in, though. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, who is your wine buying audience, and how do you market and sell to them? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm still trying to establish that firmly. Mm -hmm. uh, we do a small amount of distribution in the Willamette Valley, a couple of uh, stores in the Salem and Portland area. Um, it's largely been, because it's been so small, a local uh, crowd of people in the, the Baker uh, Union in Wallowa counties um, over there in the northeast corner of the state. But that's fairly easy when you're only making, um, you know, 6,000 bottles of wine a year. It's, it's pretty easy to sell that into a population base of, uh, I think the, those three counties are, you know, there's 100,000 people there. So you can, you can move 6,000 bottles to 100,000 people. Um, but now that we're increasing production, uh, I really want the winery to continue being a, uh, like a micro producer, something that really focuses on, on small lot production. Um, I don't want to get into the, the big, um, you know, the big producing game where I'm selling a hundred thousand cases of a value-priced wine. Uh, that's not something that I really want to do. I really want the wines to continue to speak for themselves and and to grow that way. And the really the only way to do that is to to build direct relationships with each buyer individually. Um, so my my plan or my goal over the next you know three or four years is to really build up a wine club or you know a, a kind of a cult following. Mm -hmm. um, of people that like my wines. Uh, there's this gal over in, on the East Coast that absolutely loves my Pinot Noir, so. Uh, and she's been out to the winery and tasted my wines before. And, and that's, like, those are the kind of people that, that I want to sell my wine to. You know, she, she buys a case of wine from me uh, about every six months, which is, that's really exciting because, like, you, 
you get to meet your customers and you get to you know share your story with them and you get to hear their experiences mm -hmm. of tasting the wine and you know and then they post on your Facebook page like you know I just enjoyed Copper Belt Pinot Noir or Copper Belt Ranchers Red or or whatever variety that they're they're enjoying at that time and um, that's to me what is exciting and, and what I want to do and grow so um, the last year I've I've been uh, trying to get into a lot of the wine festivals and stuff like in McMinnville there's the SIP um, McMinnville Food and Wine Classic and then of course there's the two big ones on the coast Astoria Seafood and Wine and Newport Seafood and Wine and um, Portland Seafood and Wine Festival and several others around the state um, those are a really good way for me to bring my wine to individuals mm -hmm. and I get to share my story with them um, and hopefully establish a um, you know a relationship that they'll continue supporting me um, so that's where my target audience is as far as who actually buys my wine I mean I've had I've had people that just turned 21 that you know absolutely love my wines and they're loyal supporters um, young growing families you know they're my age um, that support me all the way up to you know I have 80 year old people that you know, love to buy cases of my wine. I like those people a lot. They, they typically have a lot more money than everybody else. But, <laughs> um, but as far as the demographic goes, uh, just people that are passionate about wine and, um, you know, like the story behind wine, like those are the people that I, I want to share my, share my, my vision with, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, you know, I, I would, I'd be happy to sell my wine all around the world, um, but I would love to be able to sell my wine to people around the world that know who I am, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, I can invite them over for dinner or they can invite me over for dinner. Um, I, I think those are the kind of people that I, I want to continue selling my wine to. Because um, if somebody just wants a bottle of wine, there's cheaper and easier things to drink out there, you know, at every 7-Eleven or um, convenience store. Yellowtail Shiraz, I drank a lot of that in college. That's <laughs> kind of ubiquitous, you can buy that anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, yeah that's, that's kind of what I, what I hope to, to see. I think, we're, I think our current um, sales are about 75% wholesale distribution and about 25% direct-to-consumer. Uh, I'd like to flip that around because mm -hmm. the direct-to-consumer, those are the people I can share my story with. I mean, there's also the profit margin too, but that's not, that's not romantic. <laughs> so. In your opinion, what or how would you define the identity of the Snake River uh, AVA? Oh boy. Um, that's a really good question and a difficult question to answer. Um, I would say that the Willamette Valley has had a lot of success in branding Pinot Noir as their identity, mm -hmm. uh, Burgundian style Pinot Noir. Um, and not only that, but some of the best in the world. Uh, as far as branding the Snake River AVA, uh, wow. Um, a whole AVA together 
Um, Idaho produces a lot of different varietals. Um, so to name one varietal that brands it, I, I couldn't. Mm -hmm. um, nor a particular winemaking style. Um, as far as me being on the forefront of branding uh, the Oregon side of the Snake River ABA, uh, I hope that we don't necessarily get branded as a single varietal producer, but a producer that um, that considers tradition and the land first and foremost, as far as um, being able to tell the story of everybody that's come before us. Uh, so I would, if you could come up with some sort of slogan, um, you know, something that has to do with an Oregon pioneering experience that brings people back to the land mm -hmm. um, and and being able to produce wines that that speak of that land and um, you know speak of the generation that is responsible for doing that um, so what that means for wine styles it's like I think that goes back to my own selfish philosophy of winemaking. It's like let the grapes talk for themselves and let the wine talk for itself um, is what I hope that that area gets branded. Um, you know, just being able to produce very good, very drinkable, enjoyable wines that, that families can talk about. Um, you know, for me that, that means fruit forward. Um, uh, well-integrated wines that, that speak of, of where they're grown. Uh, that's what I hope that uh, we get branded as, is, is just really good wine. <laughs> you know, and not something that, you know, is hyped up. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, when they hear or speak of wine, they tend to stick their nose up in the air a little bit, and, and there's a lot of schnobbery associated with that. And, um, <laughs> that's probably the uh, the reason that like Naked Winery at, in Hood River has done so well in their branding is because they've they've totally taken the schnobbery out of out of wine and brought it to everybody. And I I think that vision at its core I think needs to be true of all of our growing regions. And I hope that. You know, our rural rural communities over there on the Oregon side of the Snake River ABA continue to see that and continue to do that. Is um, you know, make wine something that everybody else can live that passion to, mm -hmm. and can hear that story. So, but as far as a brand, uh, you know, my my friends they they were always like, Travis, you're going to be called Papa Syrah, because <laughs> that was the largest. That was the first block of um, large varietal um, uh, 2008 I planted. Uh, it was like three quarters of an acre of Syrah in 2008 at my estate vineyard. You're going to be called Papa Syrah. 
And then uh, like a year later, I planted an acre of Riesling. So it was more than the Syrah. And they're like, you're gonna be called Papa Riesling. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's like, I, <laughs> um, definitely I think big reds are gonna be what, what comes from that area. Um, and I hope they're very uh, European in style. Uh, and I think they can be. So old world wines made in the new, the new world um, uh, by, by pioneers of Eastern Oregon. <laughs> so maybe, maybe they will call me Papa Syrah in 100 years, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Syrah definitely on the Oregon side thus far is the, the, the most widely planted varietal. Uh, there's, there's the three quarters of an acre of Syrah that I have at the estate vineyard, which is only a total of three acres. And then there's uh, uh, eight acres of Syrah that we planted last spring. Um, so almost nine total acres of Syrah. The next most common varietal is probably Riesling, mm -hmm. which there's uh, between my acre and the other two acres that I've planted thus far, it makes three acres of Riesling um, on the Oregon side of the Snake River AVA. Um, but hopefully the Syrah does well. In your experience so far, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages to having an AVA where it's across state borders? Well, so far the advantage is, is that I got darn lucky that I didn't have to establish an AVA. So when I say, yeah, um, we're growing grapes in Baker County, um, we're in the Snake River AVA. Uh, people don't automatically assume that you're insane. You know, or why would you do that? Right. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, we, we definitely got lucky that we were within the border of, a, of an established AVA. So thank you, Idaho, because they were the ones responsible for, for uh, establishing that AVA. Um, so I think, I think that side is, is really, really cool. But I guess the downside of that, too, is, is that um, because they were the ones responsible for establishing the AVA. If you go to the shelf tomorrow in a major grocery store chain and you see a wine that's labeled Snake River, um, it's going to be an Idaho wine. Uh, unless you happen to go to two stores within the state of Oregon uh, where I have my Snake River AVA wine, um, you're, you're gonna find an Idaho wine. So uh, I, I have to early on establish myself as, as a different um, growing side of of the the Snake River AVA to to kind of put some separation in in, in that because some Idaho wines are not so enjoyable and others are, mm -hmm. um, but I don't want to be branded as an Idaho growing region, so that that'll be a challenge that I'm sure we'll face down the road, especially as more vineyards come online. Um, you know, the Willamette Valley has done a great job of being able to break apart. Uh, other growing areas. I wouldn't call them sub-AVAs because they would, although that's kind of the, the layman term is sub-AVA. I think if it's sub is less in quality, but I think it should be the other way around. The Dundee Hills is a, you know, an example of what the entire AVA can do, for example. So I think we can, in the future, have uh, other appellations within the Snake River AVA that might be able to, to define those those, uh, those areas that we're currently growing in now. Um, but I don't have to go out and seek AVA approval 
or push for it uh, since since I'm already within the the boundaries of one uh, that that really helps on the marketing side um, already. So that's that's kind of a huge like here you go have a winery in an area that nobody's grown in before and oh by the way it is within an ABA. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> All that groundwork's been you know taken away. So. Um, but yeah, I, I think separating our, ourselves from what Idaho is doing is going to be a big challenge, but um, thanking Idaho uh, is, is going to be a good thing. I, I think the Columbia Valley uh, is, has been able to do that fairly well. There's not a lot of producers on the Oregon side of the Columbia Valley yet, but uh, there's getting to be more and more. Um, although when most people hear Columbia Valley, they automatically think Washington. Uh, but but they've, they've definitely you know, started to break apart those, mm -hmm. that AVA or so um, and, and done better at branding you know, different areas like the Walla Walla or the Rocks District or the Wahaluk Slope all within those. So they're starting to become more and more um, diversity within that area. And, and that's kind of what I would hope that the Snake River comes into. I, as far as I know, they are starting to do that on the Idaho side a little bit. Um, break that ABA up a little bit. So that's that's kind of unique. So yeah, there's pluses and minuses to it for sure. Probably more benefit right now than, mm -hmm. than not. Well, you started to answer this for me. Um, my next question is, where do you see Snake River Valley ABA evolving in the next 10, 20, 50 years? Yeah, um, I definitely see it following more of what we see in like the Willamette Valley or the Columbia Valley, continuing to to break apart smaller Appalachians uh, within it. Um, I see definitely the Idaho side growing more as more recognition comes into an area. You get more prestigious um, winemakers or wineries or um, more diversification in winemaking style, which can bring more influence in. Mm -hmm. uh, and better wines, you know, more competition, more people out there doing it, you can make better wines. Um, I think branding the entire Snake River ABA as a, um, as a world contender of making extremely fine wines is, uh, is something that um, can happen in the future of that area. I mean, I don't think there's anybody in the U.S. that drinks wine that doesn't know Napa Valley, when you say Napa Valley, or the Sonoma Coast, or more and more so the Willamette Valley as a whole. Um, you know, I, I would think that in you know, another 30 years, the, uh, the Snake River AVA could be, be in that same, um, that same boat. I mean, there's definitely a lot of people that know Walla Walla, um, even you know, outside of the Pacific Northwest in the Columbia Valley. So um, I, I see Idaho being able to, to do that. As far as where I see um, the Oregon side, uh, boy, you know, I've, I've had dreams of going down into uh, Eagle Valley, which is where I'm helping grow these other vineyards, uh, which is right on the Idaho border, close to the Snake River and Hell's Canyon. And it's kind of this warm banana belt. Um, they used to grow a ton of peaches there, and you know they can grow corn 
taller than the skyscrapers almost. Uh, and the, the, the vineyards down there, the, the oldest one is of mine is four years old now. I, I see the, the foothills of that area, which is largely all um, flood irrigated, just grazed land for cattle. It doesn't have a lot of market value um, apart from grazed land. I, I see that, I guess my dream and my hope is to you know go down into that valley where all these rolling hills are and just seeing thousands of acres of, of wine grapes planted on these plateaus that nobody can really farm because they're either too steep or too rocky. Um, and it's like you know, being able to bring this small town of a couple hundred people back to life uh, and you know maybe making it the next Walla Walla um, or maybe the next Carlton, Oregon. If you've been there, there's you know 17 wine tasting rooms all within a three block area. Everybody wants to know where to taste wines in the Lamont Valley, I send them to Carlton. <laughs> uh, you know, to have that be the potential, mm -hmm. I think is really, really exciting because in order for that to happen, it's beyond me. Mm. Like it's not just me and mine, it's, it's going to take the, the industry as a whole to grow and to, you know, for other people to come in and do things. And um, there's so many people that have said, well, that must be nice. You kind of have a corner on the market. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's nice in a way when somebody wants a local wine, I am the only one, but that doesn't really draw a crowd. Mm -hmm. People don't go to Baker City because of the wine. And one day that would be really cool for people to go to Baker City because of the wine mm -hmm. um, that's, that's grown in Baker County. So it's like, you know, those are, those are like, you know, monumental, huge dreams that, who knows, maybe, maybe one day it, it, it could happen. Um, the, the second vineyard we planted down there in Richland, the, the owner is actively looking for like a 200 acre farm that he can then go in and plant like 100 acres of grapes on. And he has the resources to be able to do it. Um, and that's exciting and terrifying all at the same time because if somebody plants a 100 acre vineyard in an area, like that's saying something. Like that's like saying that, okay, we're gonna do this and we're gonna do it legitimate. It's not just a bunch of farmers that wanna try a hobby. Uh, so that's, that's like a big step and he's, he's very serious about it. So if, if the right place comes up for sale, he's going to buy it, and that's that's what he's going to do. Uh, and and to be a part of that is just like, whoo, that is so cool, you know? Like, wow, we could really be doing something here. So as you know, as long as as God is good to us on the you know the weather side and letting us uh, continue to grow and and uh, helping me to make good drinkable wine. I think that's what it's going to take. Um, you know, I don't want to be the only winery in the area. I really don't. Um, I think that having a dozen wineries in the area would be just the coolest thing in the world. Even if, even if my winery is the smallest one out of them, or the least known, uh, I still think that would be just really cool because that meant that um, that we did something right to bring those people in uh, to to do something that nobody's done before and, and be successful at it. It means that the wines are of, of enough quality and caliber to bring those kinds of people in. So um, that's my hope for the area, for sure. Um, 
My hope is not to be the biggest or the best. Uh, if if a uh, hundred years from now nobody even knows my name, I won't be sad, mm. because um, because that will have meant that other wineries, you know, stepped up and 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 carried the torch, and you know, they they might know them, and you know, maybe my name is mentioned in passing as the first one with a crazy idea, but you know, <laughs> I I think the uh, the notoriety that you know the the founding Oregon wine industry people have. That's not something that I seek, for sure. Um, it'd be really cool if somebody else came in and, and took up that torch, and maybe I can help them. You know, the, being the vineyard manager, you don't get your name on a lot of uh, pamphlets, or you don't, you know, nobody knows who you are. You know, they, they know the vineyard name, they know the vineyard owners, and they know the winemaker. Uh, and for you know the eight or nine years that I did that, that was fine with me, because I knew that I was you know, I was still a part of something and, th and that's good enough for me. So I, uh, it's sometimes it's hard for the spotlight to be put on myself. It's like, no, put it on somebody else that's actually doing something. But uh, I have to remind myself that if I'm not doing it, then nobody else will at this point in time. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, that's, that's kind of where I see it going is my dreams. Um, if it doesn't, then, uh, then I hope it pays the bills until I'm, I'm ready to go to a place in the sky. <laughs> so we'll see. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, taking that more broadly now, how have you seen the larger Oregon wine industry evolve and where do you think that's going? Oh, you know, it's really cool to see the Oregon wine industry grow and flourish as it has. I mean, even over the last, you know, 10 years that I've been involved with it, um, there's there's more and more people that when they hear Oregon they don't think of timber or they don't think of you know agricultural production it's like more and more people are thinking Oregon oh they make really good wine there uh, and we're we're getting recognized on a on a global scale uh, I think it was like the May issue of Wine Spectator this last year. Ken Wright was on the front cover of it. And like, that is so stinking cool mm -hmm. that we have an Oregon winemaker uh, that got featured on the front cover of probably the, the most well-known wine publication in the world. Um, it just speaks volumes of what we're doing here in this state. And it's just like, yeah, <laughs> high five to all of us. Uh, you know, they, uh, the Wine Spectator did a 2012 um, article on all of our good Pinot Noirs, and I think they did it um, prior to that in 2008. So it's like we're getting more and more recognition that way, um, not to mention all the, you know, the notoriety that we've gotten on the global standpoint for the quality of our wines. Um, you know, I think David Lett was really instrumental in, in really kind of establishing uh, Oregon as an area that can actually grow some high quality uh, stuff. There's a few other producers that, that did as well, but I mean, just, just being able to, you know, go to an area that has been doing this for thousands of years and saying, hey, we can do it better, and this is proof, uh, is, is so exciting. Um, 
you know, we have a lot to learn from areas like France that have been growing wine since the Roman occupation uh, and, and doing that and, and doing it well. Um, but to come in at so young of an age on the global front and and like make a name for ourselves and, and get that kind of recognition and then have the outside world turn to look in uh, is, is really, really cool. Um, I think the United States as a whole is still very much known as, you know, California Cabernet or California wines, you know, California Chardonnay. Um, I think that is starting to change a little bit now with what we're doing up here in the Pacific Northwest, um, not just in Oregon, but in, in Washington as well, and to some extent Idaho, but definitely the, the notoriety that we're getting, especially with um, outside investment, um, you know, uh, Le, the Jadot acquisition of Resonance Vineyard, uh, you know, marked the first, you know, Burgundian house buying a vineyard on Oregon ground uh, when uh, Robert Durand purchased his uh, hillside estate in the 80s. Um, it's like that. Those are really, really cool milestones in what we're doing here, and you know, to the layperson, like that. Nobody knows who Robert Durin is, or you know the the Jadots or anybody else for that matter. But it's like to people that you know are in the Oregon wine industry, that's a you know that's a really cool thing. Um, it's still sad to see some you know old farmers that were here before grapes were planted still not like that and not you know buy into it. But uh, I mean, look at what the the wine industry has done to the state of Oregon. I think it's like a three billion dollar industry now. Is that? Uh, that's that's cool. Um, that's like saying something. That's um, that's providing jobs for people and a better standard of living. And you know, that's that's establishing a legacy that can go on for more than just us, like here or today. You know, a hundred years from now, the Willamette Valley is still probably going to be producing some spectacular Pinot Noir, and uh, you know, it's it's because you know there were a few people that started it, and then there were more people that saw that that was you know a viable business, um, and uh, so I, I think that you know, Oregon is very much in its infancy still, you know, from a global production, I don't know what it is, but it's probably like 0.0003% of the overall volume of wine that is produced in the world it comes out of Oregon. But it's, but it's like a really, really important, you know, thousandth of a percent. And uh, people are starting to recognize that. And I think uh, the more people that come in, uh, the more that's going to just help the entire Pacific Northwest, you know, establish something that's going to last forever. Portland's like one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. There's like 50,000 people a year that are moving into Portland. It's ridiculous. Um, I like to think the wine industry is part of that. <laughs> uh, I think Oregon has done a great job of being on the forefront of uh, taking the pioneering dream and making it a reality and, and uh, going back to the land and you know, the farm to fork movement and, and you know, all of these things uh, I think are largely, you know, a, a result of what, what the, you know, 
the pioneers, wine pioneers did 50 years ago. Um, and, and bringing that movement here, I think it's just, it's really cool. I, I think that um, we have a long way to go and, and a lot to learn uh, in how to do it right, but I think Oregon's on the right track so far, and I think, uh, um, I think the more we continue on, the, the more notoriety we're gonna get, and the more publicity, and, and we're gonna just keep making better wines, so we don't screw it up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, Travis, those were all of my planned questions. Okay. Is there anything that we should have asked you that we didn't, or any last closing thoughts? Keep drinking fine Oregon wines. <laughs> Excellent. I think that's it. Good. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.